0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we get to speak with Mark Garbin, who is my resident expert on bourbon and whiskey. We're going to talk about whiskey both from a taste and experience perspective, but also as a business model and an asset class. In Mark's day job, he's an investment management executive focusing on the fiduciary duty issues in investment vehicles for public and private funds. He's a CFA charter holder and a professional risk manager. However, he also is an author of the new book, Whiskey Glory, about the Dewar's product line and brings an unbelievable wealth of knowledge in the bourbon and whiskey industry. He's going to talk a little bit about business models and the future of the space, and we're really lucky to have him. Welcome aboard, Mark.
1: Thanks a lot. It's great to be here, Fraser.
0: Well, you have a very diversified background, both from a day job perspective, but then ultimately in the whiskey and bourbon world. Maybe take us a little bit through what you do on a day-to-day basis, and then how did you get involved in the bourbon space, and what ignited that passion?
1: Terrific, thanks. I'm a long-time participant and manager in capital markets and in the asset management industry, worked for asset managers, brokers, investment banks, ran an equity derivative shop for a major European bank, and been around the world in the course of my jobs, my mantra has always been, don't drink more, drink better. And so what I would do is I would try to find places everywhere that I went in the world that had great whiskey lists, great wine lists, where you could have, based on your mood, the best spirits or the best wines that were not necessarily so expensive, but would have great quality. And so Over the course of the years, I built up both experience in the financial industry as well as whiskey. My day job is I am a fiduciary. I'm an independent director for about a half a dozen different trusts comprising $30 billion of assets. And I sit on the board with a group of other independents. This is for both domestic as well as international funds add public versus private funds. I do both. And in the course of my whiskey love, I started to want to combine the analytic framework from finance with an alternative asset class like whiskey. Since I sit on the board of a number of asset classes that are alternative, whether it's private equity or private credit, in order to do that, I wanted to do the same kind of approach to whiskey as I take to the rest of the financial business. I wanted to be as rigorous as possible. And in that regard, I started going to a number of bars in New York City. And New York City, as you know, has a lot of bars. But I had two criteria. The first criteria was the whiskey list had to be terrific. And then it had to be romantic. Because what people like to do around good alcohol is be together and talk and have a more intimate conversation. And that led to both my getting more educated formally in whiskey to become a certified whiskey sommelier. And I started writing about whiskey bars. And that led to the publication of a book called Whiskey and Romance Manhattan in 2018. And it covers the most romantic and best whiskey bars in New York City along with some excursions outside of New York City, where on a nice day like it is today, you could drive up to the Hudson and go to a series of restaurants along the Hudson and have that nice romantic sunset feel along with some great wine or great whiskey. My focus has been on whiskey. So combining the analytic framework from investment management and my love of whiskey led to my getting a sommelier designation, writing a book, and looking at whiskey as an asset class. Bourbon is the Native American whiskey. So I started there, even though I'm what you would call a whiskey omnivore. I tend to like all whiskeys, whether they're bourbon, rye, or scotch.
0: Quick question. What's involved with becoming a whiskey sommelier? How long does it take? What do they have you do?
1: There are two courses that you take through the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, which is an international organization that does certification with both whiskey and wine. They also do now a sake certification, it's become that complicated. So you go through the courses and you learn a lot about things that go into whiskey. And that ranges anywhere from, and it's not just whiskey, it's all spirits. So you can look at grains in the United States, something that's made with corn like bourbon or rye or even malted barley in Scotland. You would call that single malt or you can blend them and it's called blended scotch to cognac and armagnac in France or shouju in China, cachaça in South America. And so, what you do is you go through what you recognize as the governing characteristics as to what makes each one different, how they distill it, and what makes a good whiskey versus not so good whiskey. And then the final level is one where you actually have to taste six whiskeys in a row every week for six weeks. And it's followed up by a 100 question exam. Oh, wow.
0: It sounds scarier than law school.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it brings new meaning to the term passing the bar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Jeez, I feel like I set you up for that and I didn't even know it.
1: (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) So that's how you can do it. There's another whiskey sommelier certification. It's run by some folks down in Austin, Texas. It's called the Whiskey Vault and you can see them on YouTube. And they're basically two guys, Daniel and Rex. Their YouTube videos are absolutely hilarious, but they are really good at what they do. And they're very smart. and They know whiskey inside out. And you can go down there and you can actually take the course. And they have various levels you can take. And you can emerge a whiskey butterfly, so to speak, with a certification.
0: So. You get the certification, which gives you a lot of different expertise. You write the book around the experience of whiskey in Manhattan. Let's go back to the investment profile around whiskey and bourbon and the juice as an asset class. We talk about a lot of family offices and now even ultra high net worth and high net worth and even retail investors who are looking for uncorrelated assets to put into a broader portfolio with longer time horizons. How does the whiskey fit into something like that? And in a sense, what are the return profiles like? And I guess what are the risks?
1: Let's start with a basic. A lot of people have heard of Macallan single malt. A bottle of eighteen-year-old Macallan goes for about three hundred and fifty dollars a bottle. Sometimes you can find it cheaper. Sometimes it's more expensive, but around three hundred and fifty dollars. If you add seven years to that and you go to McAllen 25, the price of a bottle of McAllen 25 is now $3,500. And so when you just do the calculation, when you go to 350 and you're going to 3,500 and you're doing that over seven years, that is an annual rate of return of a little more close on order of 39% per year.
0: Compelling in any situation.
1: Right, but that's for a brand that has waited 18 years to sell that. And so in financial terms, you think of, I've made an investment today. I'm waiting 18 years in order to sell it. So I've got a cost of carry and a cost of financing. And so all in all, the IRR is much lower than that. But the objective here in the bourbon industry is you start at a lower level. So, for example, if you want to get a one-year barrel of bourbon, you know, it's about a thousand dollars for a one-year barrel, and bourbon's best expression starts really at the four-year mark. At a two-year barrel of bourbon, it's probably somewhere around twenty-five hundred dollars. Three years is probably thirty-five hundred. Four years is probably forty-five hundred. It's an asset class that increases in value because more bourbon that's older is drinkable. In Kentucky, as well as in the United States, in order to be a bourbon that does not have an age statement on it, it has to be at least four years old. So anything below four years has to have an age statement on it. And most of the bourbon sold in the United States is four years and older. So that's really the tipping point for when the bourbon gets bottled. And frequently it's bottled in near six to
0: seven. Once bottled, there are judgments made as to when to sell it, either at that seventh year, or if you go to the McAllen example, 18 versus 25, and that's where it's the brand kind of figuring out what the quality is versus the intersection with what's publicly interesting.
1: That's correct. One disadvantage that bourbon has is that as bourbon gets older, depending on the content of the bourbon, there are some exceptions, but as bourbon generally gets older, It doesn't mature the same way that scotch does. It matures in a different way. So, for example, bourbon, because it is required to be matured in new oak barrels, it extracts a lot of the oak over time. And because of the heat and humidity in Kentucky and a lot of places like Tennessee, where 95% of the bourbon in this country is distilled, A barrel acts like a sponge. In hot weather, it's absorbed. And as temperature cools, the barrel extrudes it. Think of it as a sponge. A lot of that, over a course of a period of time, leaves older and older bourbon as oaky. Now, unless they're more weeded bourbons, like a Pappy Ben Winkle, which is an exception to the rule, which is primarily wheat-oriented along with corn. It has to be 51% corn, but it's a high degree of wheat in Pappy Van Winkle, and it ages better than, let's call it a rye-based secondary grain. Scotland doesn't have that problem. Scotland uses used bourbon casks. They actually get their casks from the United States that were bourbon. <laughs> and so a lot of that woodiness is taken out of it. Furthermore, the climate in Scotland is much gentler on barrels and you don't lose as much to evaporation. It's called the angel share and you don't have that much absorption and extrusion. So scotch has a tendency to age better than bourbon for a variety of reasons. And so when you look at the sweet spot for bourbon, depending on the mash bill that is used. In making the bourbon, sweet spots are generally at least four years old and can go up to 12. That's where most of the bourbons are sold. Getting back to the investment standpoint, you can invest in bourbon yourself. You can buy a barrel. There are auction places where you can buy barrels of bourbon and hold on to it. And that's like buying one stock and holding on to that one stock. The analogy is really good because some people fall in love with one stock. (laughs) Some people will fall in love with their barrel of bourbon. The challenge is with stock, you can't go up to it and taste it. You either are going to watch the financial statements and like it or not. (laughs) But if you buy a barrel of bourbon, you have the ability to go travel to see your barrel and take some samples out of it as it ages. It can be a lot of fun. But it becomes more of a hobby than it is an investment. Now, if you're going to make an investment, what you would want is the same thing that you would want in any kind of reasonable investment. And that's a diversified portfolio. And what people do is they participate in what are known as barrel programs, which is either an equity share, sort of a limited partnership of bourbons, where you participate in the price appreciation over time. And you have to remember that notwithstanding the fact that in and itself is liquid, the investment is illiquid.
0: A counterintuitive comment, but point taken.
1: (laughs) And so what you have to do is be prepared for when a barrel is maturing and it's bought by somebody, you're going to replace that in an equity fund and have a continuous barrel appreciation. The other way to do it is when you look at the risks, we'll talk about the risks of a barrel in a moment, but if you look at investments on a risk-adjusted basis, a debt program called a Barrel Debt Program can provide the same kind of diversification, but you have a first lien on all of the barrels. and Usually they're over collateralized, so your loan-to-value ratio is low. It's in around 80. And you have a nice coupon on it. And if it's on an individual craft distiller, you're probably going to get some warrant coverage early on. So you actually can participate in some ownership. You can have a portfolio of diversified group of barrels that once they're sold and you get the cash, become bourbons, and then you can replace them over a period of time, but you have a finite maturity.
0: And it sounds like, too, with that debt instrument, you can actually get some yield out of the asset, which is different from owning it and having it sit there and then hoping it appreciates and then selling it later on. Exactly. You
1: can think about it in the scope of a qualified investment. A lot of high net worth individuals use their trust companies to hold these types of assets. And so I'm thinking in terms of either any kind of qualified plan or even a Roth, where if you've got cash payment or even a PIC instrument, you can hold it there and it becomes a very tax-friendly vehicle. Interesting. So what are the dangers? There are a number of dangers. If you are in the equity ownership, there are two things that, besides over-oaked, that can happen to bourbon. First is it can leak. It's liquid in a wood barrel.
0: With alcohol in it. It could catch on fire. <laughs> right.
1: Okay. Then you've got, along with the natural disasters that can occur, like a fire in the Barton warehouse, which I think 40,000 some odd barrels literally went up in smoke. So there's, And now you get insurance for that. But you have to make sure that the fund that you're with or any barrels that you buy on your own are insured every year to the market value, not the purchase value.
0: Which makes total sense because you're buying it to increase in value over the course of the years as it ages, which is the characteristic of the asset.
1: Exactly. and so, But you are buying something that in the early years has the greatest percentage rate of return. And then by the fourth year, you're looking at a similar type of return in the uh, high 20s if things go well for you.
0: How much does it cost to store barrels generally? Is it 1% or something like that?
1: It's a great question. Each fund has their own costs. It's not cheap. 1% percent's probably a good number, but it's, don't forget that insurance costs increase over the years and with evaporation you're getting less and less bourbon in the barrel. And the good way to look at the loss from evaporation is you lose about 10% the first year as whiskey is absorbed by the barrel and then 2 to 4% usually in Kentucky it's around 4% every year after that through evaporation. But even with that calculation and even with the cost of insurance from an equity standpoint your rates of return can be pretty good. But you are exposed to natural disasters where you may not recoup the value of the whiskey that you have not marked at. You also have disasters with spillage. And occasionally, the barrels can be over-oaked. There can be mold on the barrels. There are all sorts of things that can go wrong when it's stored in a rickhouse. Somebody can pick up the barrel on a forklift and drop it on the ground.
0: <laughs> you can envision A parade of horribles of someone fooling around in the warehouse and all of a sudden the multi-thousand dollars you have per barrel just goes up or not goes up in value. It just either goes up in smoke or collapses and all your good due diligence has gone away.
1: The other alternative is debt and the debt you're going to get a return anywhere from eight to 12% with some warrant coverage. And you can either take it in pick, you can take it in cash, but it's a high yielding instrument where your collateral value actually goes up pretty much every year. And you have a finite maturity for those barrels. And if you pick the right distillery, where you can have a really good distillery, you can take advantage of the fact that a lot of bourbon in the craft industry has limited distribution. And by virtue of the fact that you're investing in the debt, one of the perks is that you get a bottle of whiskey that's really good over the course of a period of time. And if the distillery is on its game, they'll send some barrel samples out as it matures, so you at least know what you're financing.
0: How important is it to have good relationships with the people who supply the inputs for the juice? It strikes me that in many ways you're as good as the liquid that you get before you put it into the barrels. And how do you analyze that as part of your barrel program? You
1: want to look at this, the same way you look at a portfolio manager is how experienced are they? Who are they working with to develop the flavor profiles? Where are they buying from? What are their qualifications and credentials? Are there any certifications that they can have? And so you look at it with the same rigor that you do with any kind of investment. That said, there's a lot of variation in barrels. So, what you really want is You're putting your faith behind a management team that is going to use the barrels to sell whiskey. And before they can take the barrels out of the barrel program, they have to either sell it and pledge the receivable, pledge the cash, over-collateralize that with other barrels that they have so that you have what Benjamin Graham would call a margin of safety.
0: So we've talked a little bit about the barrel program. Then you get to the point where the barrels turn into whiskey themselves. And there are lots of companies from Jack Daniels on down, Brown Foreman, et cetera, on down to Bullet and some of the Pappy Van Winkles that are out there that have more of a craft orientation toward bourbon whiskey. So in your experience, how do you evaluate those companies and investments at that level, and I guess at the root, what makes a good whiskey company? And then how does that translate, or maybe a better way to put it is, how does the development of the brand translate to the development of the good juice that's ultimately sold?
1: It's great because what makes a good company is not necessarily what makes a good brand. What makes a good brand is if you go to a store and you buy a bottle, Is that when that bottle is empty, is you'll go out and you'll buy a second bottle. A number of craft distillers can have people buy their first bottle. It's sort of like writing a book. A lot of people say anybody's got a book in them. And that may be true, but not a lot of people have a second book in them. And so what makes a good brand is, do you have awareness of that brand so that people will want it or hunt for it? What makes a good company is what is driving your profitability. And there are opportunities to invest in craft distillers. You have to basically know how to source those deals. But the challenge is, is what's the business model? And right now, the business model for bourbon companies in particular is changing dramatically. The reason it's changing dramatically is, and this is what makes for a good whiskey company, is that unless you're one of the big boys, and by the big boys, I'm talking about Buffalo Trace, which is owned by, Sazerac, you have Beam Suntory and Heaven Hill. You've got a lot of really big companies producing a number of brands, and frankly, the quality of those brands are very high. But they are mass produced, and they are focused on different consumers and for the mass market. Then you get companies like Old Carter, which is formed by a couple who started Kentucky Owl, and they focused on really high quality bourbon. But what they're also doing is focusing on how do you generate the profit? And you generate the profit by either charging a very high price for your bourbon. In this case, you've got 13 year old bourbon, or American whiskey that at retail is going to sell for anywhere from 300 to $600 a bottle. So you take advantage of that scarcity factor. So that's one way you can make a good company. But what's really driving the new distilleries is the -the direct-to-the-consumer marketplace, avoiding the distribution and liquor store channel.
0: Maybe take us through a little bit, there's sort of the three-tier system, that in many ways there are three tiers of costs that a bourbon company has to, let's call it, withstand and charge more than in order to get to that profit margin. Maybe take us through that a little bit.
1: The three tiers. The first tier is the manufacturer or the distiller. The second tier is the distributor, which under most state laws is required. And then the third is the retailer. So that by the time it gets to you a $20 bottle of booze that is produced at the distiller, that's their cost, is going to cost you $60 at the store.
0: That's to keep the distributor happy, and that's also to keep the retailer happy and to give them their cut of the product before it gets to the consumer.
1: Correct. It's a lot of mouths to feed. Some people call it death by a thousand cuts. In this case, it's death by three cuts. When you think about if a distiller wants to make $10 a bottle, that means $30 is getting taken out of the system by the wholesaler and the...
0: Interesting. A big cut. (laughs) It's significant.
1: And so imagine you're the distiller and you say, look, if I can go directly to the consumer, either through direct marketing... Where I'm allowed to do that. And there are 11 states in the District of Columbia where you can do that, and it's going to grow. Or you have an experience at your distillery where you're selling a lot of your bottles at the distillery, and your $20 cost is that you're selling it for the same price at $60, but all of a sudden you're pocketing the $40. So the craft distillers are competing with the good companies as craft distillers, are competing with the behemoths by trying to be more profitable on a per-bottle basis. What that means is that the bourbon industry, which has seen craft explosions, has moved from just selling cases through the three-tier system to what kind of experience can I generate for the end consumer? If you're just direct to the consumer from the distiller, you've got to create that oh-wow sense that when somebody taste that bourbon and they've tasted bourbon from other bottles they have to take a step back look at the glass and say oh wow and that's exactly what the carters are doing with old carter the other alternative is to take your distillery and if you're in kentucky you're on the bourbon trail or if you're at the distillery like hill rock in new york or woodenville in washington the state of washington you want people to come to your distillery and buy your bottles there. And it becomes an experience. You take a look at where things are made, how things are made. At Hill Rock, you can go, which is in Anchor New York, in Columbia County, just south of Albany. You can actually go see the malting floor where they're malting the barley. You can go see the mash tuns where they are putting the mash bills together. You can see the finishing casks. And then you can have an experience both outside and inside of tasting all of the product lines that they've got. In Kentucky, there's something called the Bourbon Trail. And there are millions of visitors to the Bourbon Trail. And a good startup company will spend a great deal of money on getting people to come visit their distillery because they have a very good bourbon. But they can sell that bourbon at the distillery for three times the price that it cost them to make it and pocket that distribution premium that would normally accrue in the three tier system.
0: So it's really what you're saying is there's this two pronged strategy out there. There's the sell direct from, let's call it the point of production or some other place that's important. Kentucky's got its own sort of patina of quality within the bourbon world. And then there's also, in a sense, this digital or sort of brand strategy where if you can bypass the traditional Structures, you can maintain more of that profit margin and get a broader reach, possibly worldwide reach, and help get to that scale that maybe the local visitor would be capped at in terms of you're limited to the number of visitors that come to Kentucky and go down the trail. And if you're fighting for eyeballs with 30 other distilleries, you have a different set of competition you can deal with.
1: That's correct. And if you're looking at companies, you want to see which company is also internationally based. So, for example, 2020 was a little different, but 2019 was a reflection of a number of years previous. Care to guess what the number one whiskey sold in the United Kingdom was? In 2020, it was different.
0: Okay. I'm going to guess Jack Daniels.
1: Jack Daniels is it. Oh, good. (laughs) It's kind of antithetical. You think of the number one whiskey sold in the United Kingdom. It's not a scotch. It's a Tennessee whiskey. In 2020, because of both tariffs and COVID, Famous Grouse, which is the number one selling scotch in all of the UK, became the number one seller. But bourbon is very, very popular in Japan. It's very, very popular in Germany. And there's no such thing as a three-tier system in those countries. And in fact, in Germany, there's no such thing as liquor license. (laughs) Wow. Any store can sell it.
0: And so that's an opportunity for a US-based company if they can wade through tariffs and shipping and regulatory issues at home, that can be a lucrative market. If you've bypassed at least one, if not two, of the three-tier system to get to, a in Germany, a 90 million person country.
1: That's right. You do have some other expenses, like you have an importer, you got a freight forwarder, you have a customs broker there's a number of expenses that you have. But bottom line is, is that your profit margin is still higher than it is in the US.
0: So to get back, you talked about the US regulatory environment where Kentucky, it sounds like has, for lack of a better term, sort of reciprocity with 11 other states in terms of being able to sell directly to the consumer. And you expect that to grow. And it seems to me that in the world of DoorDash and seamless and drizzly at the alcohol level that there's going to be just by virtue of how goods are distributed via Amazon, et cetera, that that would put some pressure on those types of regulations.
1: We have to remember that alcohol regulation in this country is a offshoot of the end of prohibition. And the objective was to not have the kids be drinking alcohol from any mom and pop shop on the street. So the states created this three-tier system in order to both protect their populations from themselves, as well as generate tax revenues.
0: Really interesting. What more should we be thinking about in terms of the digital strategy of a bourbon company? In many ways, some people would say, geez, a bourbon company selling via the internet, that's sort of like old school Amazon selling books through the internet, but that digitization really is a key component going forward.
1: Yeah. One thing to keep in mind, Fraser, is that every single big company is looking at this deeply right now, particularly with some of their core brands. How can they increase their profitability? while maintaining the current links that they have with the three-tier system. But they're all looking at the marginal increase that they can get from direct consumers is a material impact on their bottom line if they can do it to scale. So all the companies are looking at this. But what can they do? Well, what they can do is they can use a lot of the digital media that exists currently. Instagram is very popular. Facebook is very popular. Instagram Live, YouTube Live, you've got a lot of whiskey critics who are doing terrific work on YouTube. Anywhere from Fred Minnick to Scott at My Bourbon Journey, you've got the Whiskey Vault. There are a number of really good, solid citizens who help people navigate the world of whiskey and can do it with humor and fun but you can also use it as a way to put your product across. And so marketplaces like Drizzly, which was just bought by Uber for a billion dollars, represent the vanguard of getting distribution out to consumers in a way that when the three-tier system starts to erode, that you can participate in that. So advertising on things like Wine Searcher or Fruit Bat or Dresley or Minibar or Saucy or any one of those digital programs can pay dividends. Plus, you get the data of who's buying where. And so, like anything, it's becoming about the data.
0: I was going to say that you've just you've added a powerful component to the goodwill of the company Assuming that you have a high-quality juice that you're producing, but then you've got the data, the customer list, the way to amplify the brand and target it even more specifically to that repeat customer, which you said is what differentiates a good company from a good brand. That's the added value, it sounds like.
1: Exactly. And the securities analysts for those companies that are public are looking at that transformation in great detail and have become... Very keen observers of the transformation in the spirits and actually in the alcohol industry writ large. One of my favorites, a guy who is just on top of the situation himself and is a really keen analyst of the spirits industry, both public and private, is Borcard Nezen at Rabobank. He puts out a number of pieces, and they are thoughtful they are rigorous and contain a great deal of information as to where the industry is going. For the craft distiller, whose focusing really is on quality and the experience, because that's really what is making a good whiskey company, aside from the big boys, is how can you turn your bourbon into an experience?
0: And part of that, too, to quickly interrupt, is not just the taste of the bourbon, Are you willing to pay whatever the price point is for said bourbon? It's everything that goes into the bottle. It's the story behind the bottle. It's the community around it and everything that helps the liquid transcend an actual drink, which there are dozens of competitive drinks out there and most people would probably have some issue being able to differentiate between one or another, but it's in a sense being part of that community and taking that to the next level for those larger situations that are trying to accumulate more and more targeted audiences under their umbrella.
1: Precisely. That's exactly right. With one other thing to remember, which is as a whiskey drinker, anybody who really drinks spirits knows that you're not just going to drink one spirit all the time. Sometimes you're going to drink scotch. Sometimes you're going to drink bourbon. Sometimes you're going to make a cocktail. And it's not just going to be one scotch or one bourbon. You're going to generally have a broader number of bottles on your bar. And what has happened in COVID is really interesting in that the home bar became a very important fixture in the lockdown. And so people are spending more money on quality booze to drink at home. So when you take that into consideration and if you can project an experience level of quality with your bourbon or with your any whiskey whether it's rye or bourbon or even tequila, then that will be seen as a good quality product and you'll get a better experience to the individual.
0: Quick question, how do people discover liquors these days, or maybe a better way to put it is where does the bar fit in, not only from a distribution standpoint, but from a customer identification standpoint? You can access people with digital media or branding on TV and things like that, but the bar, it seems to me, shelf placement and so on, it doesn't sound like that's going away anytime soon, especially as people come out of COVID. Where does that fit into the strategy of, as we take that back to a bourbon maybe a niche bourbon producer or larger?
1: That's a great question. And right now, the restaurant industry is experiencing the flip side of being shut down. They can't find enough good talent to work there. There was an article in, I think it was the Wall Street Journal yesterday. It was Wall Street Journal of Bloomberg about Wolfgang Puck, who in his flagship restaurant Spago in Beverly Hills Said, look, my waiters can make $120,000 a year, but I can't find enough. (laughs) Crazy. Which is crazy. And so, but the cost factor of real estate and licensing and staff for a restaurant where you've got the same kind of food and drink calculus that has always existed, that process is going through a transformation right now. There's a digitalization of that, how you source your product how you measure the spend on that product, how you actually measure the pores in that product. There's a group in New York City called Branded Strategic that focuses on technological change inside the hospitality industry. And they're growing very, very quickly. They are not just investors, they are consultants to the industry. So they are taking this and embracing it. And the larger number of restaurants and bars are embracing it too. I'll give you a perfect example of one of their technologies is a technology called Pour My Beer. And Pour My Beer, where you got a nice profit margin with beer, but each beer takes time for the bartender to pour, whether it's taking a bottle out of the refrigerator and pouring in a glass, or taking a glass out of the refrigerator and using it in draft. And then you've got a lot of other people who want to have beers and cocktails. So if you can reduce the amount of time that a bartender spends on just doing traditional beer, and right now beer has, with craft beers, most bars are going to have about a half a dozen, if not a dozen or so, beers on their menu. And so what Pour My Beer is, is that you get a card and you're allowed a certain credit And there is effectively 12 different spouts that you can go up, much like you can in fast food right now. They give you a cup and you go in and you fill it, except you don't get free refills here. You put your (laughs) card in and you measure out and the card can measure how much beer you can drink from a cost standpoint, how much you paid for it, plus from a timing standpoint, reducing the liability of the bars and the person pours their own beer.
0: A completely different experience, to be sure.
1: <laughs> exactly. And if you want to try different beers, you can try your own. You can try a little taste here, taste there, and sample from the beers without taking up the bartender's time. And of course, what most people do is you pay for an lump sum at the bar, and you give the bartender a decent tip. Maybe not the same that you would get, but the bartender's going to get more of those than as opposed to just one big tip. And so the restaurants save a lot of money that way.
0: So as we start to think about winding down here, a couple of questions. The first one is you have this unbelievable knowledge of the industry and a very set opinion on where it's going. And in my opinion, I think you've identified kind of an interesting gap of where the industry is and where it could be going. What are you seeing out there from a company perspective that's trying to capitalize on this and what challenges do they face? What are the things that would make a good investment on that front?
1: What makes an investment is knowing that the company has a strategy. How are they going to make sure that there's an experience here? That's where a new bourbon, any kind of new whiskey will make its mark. How are they going to generate that experience? If you're in Kentucky, you want to be on the bourbon trail. You want to be able to bring a large number of people into your facility, your distillery, and sell bottles at your distillery so you can make the markup. But you also have to have really good product. And that really good product, and quite a lot of bourbon in the industry is sourced. So you can buy four year bourbons now. And you can buy it four or five, six year bourbon. You can buy one year. The question is, is do you have a plan, if you're a company, one through, let's call it six to eight year bourbon that you're going to be buying in barrels, storing it, and then selling it? It requires debt for a barrel program and equity capital to generate both the experience at the real estate level, as well as at the corporate equity level. You've got to be able to combine all of those elements. So you've got a three-legged stool. You've got product that's available. You've got the distillery experience itself. And then you've got to have consistency of both.
0: And then wrapped around that is a clear idea of how you're going to sell, not only with that experience level locally, but also more broadly as you try to get to scale so that you're interesting, both from a data perspective and an actual cases-out-the-door perspective to potential future acquirers.
1: Exactly. And so from the standpoint of what generates a good investment that gets taken out by perhaps a larger company, and what that is is a combination of experience at the distillery scarcity value of your brand recognition that your brand is good which is what happened with kentucky owl they were only in business for a very short period of time or having a business model that looks at a niche in the market And there are niches in the market one that was picked was by angels and envy that saw a finished bourbon whiskey in their case port finished bourbon would sell on the market they built their business over the course of four years And going from 5,000 cases a year to 45,000 cases a year by having a very strong marketing strategy in the three-tier system so that the scale was important. But that is a very difficult and very capital-intensive process to use. Most distilleries are not capital-rich. So what you want to be able to do is create a demand from the three-tier system with the scarcity value, and then bring people to your distillery so you can use that to generate profit. You do that digital, you do that through tourism, and you do that through a high-quality, consistent
0: product. And have the capital base to produce that product consistently so that when the demand comes, and hopefully it does come, you're able to produce because these things take time.
1: Correct. And when I think of a brand, there are a number of brands on the bourbon trail that, frankly, sell pretty bad whiskey. And that's not necessarily just my taste, although I talk to fellow critics and writers. I do, as you know, write about whiskey. I do review it. There are bourbons that are, this is not like Wobegon, not all bourbons are above average. <laughs> and so what makes for me a good investment is what is the exit? Begin with the end in mind. What kind of company is going to buy you and why are they going to buy you? Is there some experience that you're providing that they don't provide? Is there a product line extension that you have that they don't have? You have to think about where you're going to be years before you get there and be, of course, flexible in how you execute. But that's true for any private equity investment.
0: So as we wind down here, really two big questions left. You've got your new book, Whiskey Glory, that's coming out. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. and. The last question is going to be sort of a your favorite whiskey type of question, but let's start with Whiskey Glory first.
1: Whiskey Glory grew out of an appreciation of whiskeys that stand the test of time. And my first whiskey experience, which if people are really honest with themselves, occurred when they were teenagers and snuck whiskey from their parents' cabinet. And chances are that one of those whiskeys that you snuck was Dewar's White Label, which is arguably one of the top two Scotch whiskeys in the world for, let's call it, rail and cocktail drinks. And I started getting to know the brand ambassadors that served the industry in New York. And one of them, Gareth Howells, who represents this brand extraordinarily well. Introduced me to Doer's product line, which is far more diverse than many people would know. There are right now are eleven different bottlings that they have, and they're going to come out with a twelfth soon. And I did a whiskey tasting for the Union League Club pre-COVID, where we had the Doers experience, and it became so popular, and people wanted to see the reviews that I had done from all the whiskeys that I decided to put it into an ebook, And what Whiskey Glory is, is about the entire Dewar's product line, but stories around Dewar's, because the whiskey industry around the world is nothing less than great stories. I'll share one with you. Nikola Tesla, brilliant scientist, drank Dewar's White Label every single day of his life. <laughs> and the reason he did was because he thought it would help him live to 150. By the way, he was wrong. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Another one is one of the founders of Doers was traveling on a ship and put a message in a bottle and threw it overboard. And the message said, whoever finds this bottle, if you send this message to the corporate headquarters, we'll send you a case of whiskey. And the bottle showed up on the shores of Manila Bay in the Philippines. And the guy who found it was actually an American from Massachusetts. And he sent the bottle to his headquarters. He got his case of whiskey, but like a lot of things, the whiskey was transitory, and the message actually wound up being more valuable than
0: the whiskey itself. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> so cool. So the the book is filled with stories like that and reviews of their different product lines.
1: Correct, and it's on Amazon. You can look up my name, and you can see it hasn't been reviewed by many people because it's just coming out. But my other two books are are on Amazon. You can. Look them up. And as a matter of fact, what the people would say is that it's not so much that you buy the book, it's more important that you review the book.
0: That's right. And I will have those links to the books in the show notes for our listeners. And so as we part ways today, if you had your choice of whiskey at say the consumer level, maybe a mid range and then a off the charts whiskey, what are your three choices there?
1: When I look at the mid-range and I look at off the charts let's start with scotch probably depending on the mood and i'll give you a number of them there are constants constant is for example highland park 18 18 year old highland park which year after year has an extraordinary quality to it it's about 150 dollars a bar. but if i were going to look at something that's half of that price i'd look at altimore 12 a 12 year single malt. And the difference between them is that one is more of a sherry finish at the higher end, and Altmore is more of a feminine whiskey. It's light and fresh. So those are kind of my favorites on a go-to basis. On the bourbon side, I actually tend to like whiskeys that are not as high rye. And the high rye is anywhere from Let's say 18 to 21% right? I tend to like them. And this is just a personal taste. So if I'm going to look at a bourbon that is you know in the $50 range, there's a whole host that you can pick from. But if you like this more on the sweet side, you'll pick a maker's mark, which will always be consistent across the board. If you want to look at the medium range, I love what Hill Rock in New York is doing. Their Solera bourbon. Also in mid-range, I love what Kings County Distillery is doing in New York City. I think they have a peated bourbon, which is a unique experience. It's a combination of what I call bourbon for Scotch lovers. Not everybody will like it, but those who do will fall in love with it. And they have a great barrel-strength bourbon. On the higher side of bourbon, that's where it kind of gets a little tricky. But right now, my favorite would be the whiskeys that are being produced by Bardstown Distillery. They've been doing some things with finishing a whiskey. So, for example, a distillery release, in other words, a release they only sell at the distillery, is bourbon whiskey that has been sourced from a variety of other distilleries, but are finished for 45 months in Cabernet Sauvignon casks. They had a a bourbon that was finished in Chateau de Labade Armagnac casks. That was absolutely stunning. They have a bourbon that was finished in orange Curacao casks. Absolutely delicious. They're on the forefront of what people are doing in the bourbon industry. And the price is anywhere from $150 to $250. If you really want to go out on the fringe, I like the Old Carter's. I think Old Carter's quality is superb and you're gonna spend anywhere from 350 to 500. So then you now come down to the old, old Scotch. And I had a Gordon and McPhail's 50 year old, and you can still get it at a number of bars. And so those bars will have some really unique whiskeys. And if you have a chance to do it, you should. So, but the question that you haven't asked me is what are my favorite bars?
0: Right. <laughs> Try to limit it to a couple.
1: Okay. Well, in New York, there are a number of great whiskey bars. ventry down on Soho Street is a great experience, even with outdoor seating. The Brandy Library is an upscale experience with a uh, small plates of food. Tommy Tardy runs Farm and Fine and Rare, and the Flatiron Room in New York City just terrific whiskey collections and great food. In London. I love going to the Duke's Bar, the finest martini ever created in the world, and once you go there, you'll understand. I'd say the best overall whiskey bar outside of the United States I've been to is in Paris. It's called the Golden Promise. It's right near the Bourse. It has a whiskey list that's like an encyclopedia, (laughs) and it's got a wall of fame of bottles that is stunning. So... From the standpoint of whiskey, that's New York, that's Los Angeles, Jack Rose, of course, in Washington, D.C., not romantic, but another encyclopedic whiskey list. So list can go on and on, but that's a hand.
0: That's terrific. Mark, we've gone from bourbon and whiskey 101 to probably all the way through getting close to getting our Ph.D. on it, maybe not quite getting the sommelier designation, but we'll get admitted to school at least. Thank you very much for being on. and. What's the best way to stay in touch with you?
1: The best stay in touch with me is through my email address, which is markgarbin3, that's M-A-R-K-G-A-R-B-I-N, the number three at Gmail.
0: Terrific. I'll have that in the show notes, and we'll look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very much.
1: My pleasure, Fraser. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.